Grace and mercy and peace be yours from God, our Father, from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So today is our third week out of five in our Epiphany series called The Revealing. Uh, The past two weeks, what have we talked about? The first week, January 6th, Epiphany, what did we talk about? The wise men, the magi. Last week we talked about... That's a good guess. It's not, not quite right. But I think what you meant to say is the baptism of Jesus, right? Yeah, yeah. That's, so we've talked about the Magi. We've talked about the baptism of Jesus, these two events where the, the glory of Jesus uh, was manifested, was revealed to us. Uh, so today, we're looking at what John tells us in his gospel is the first miraculous sign Uh, that Jesus did in his ministry where he turned water into wine at a wedding. Uh, So those of you who are married, I want you to to think back to your wedding day. Um, What do you remember about it? I remember actually quite a lot from my wedding day. Uh, But if you were to ask almost all of the people who came to our wedding what they remember, um, it would be the weather. It was kind of the opposite of today, actually. Uh, We thought when we picked a date in late July in Portland that we were pretty much guaranteed that it would be sunny, it would be about 80 degrees, virtually no humidity at all. Um, And, well, it was sunny. Um, It was 104 degrees and roughly 100% humidity. Maybe you've been to a wedding uh, where something memorable happened one way or another. But there's only one couple in human history that could say that at their wedding, Jesus did his first miracle. So John opens up his telling of this event by saying, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And Jesus and his mother and his disciples are all among the guests. It was a very big celebration for this this small town up in the hill country of Galilee, uh, this little town called Cana where the disciple Nathaniel was from. According to the customs of the time, uh, the wedding feast likely lasted for seven days. Although it's kind of unclear, scholarship doesn't really know which day they would do the Zelebenhoek thing where they lift you up in the air. It would have been a memorable event uh, no matter what, but this wedding would be spoken of all over the world uh, from this day forward because of what Jesus did there that day. But does it matter at all uh, that Jesus did his first miracle at a wedding? Absolutely. The fact that Jesus chose such a venue for this first miracle of his with a little encouragement from his mom shows us that Jesus blesses marriage. The fact that Jesus was there to to celebrate with this couple and and then performs this miraculous sign at their wedding shows us that he, the the one who in the beginning gave Eve to Adam and told them to be fruitful and multiply, blessed that marriage that day and every marriage before and since. Today's Life Sunday, uh, a day that the church makes it a point to to celebrate the sanctity of the gift of life that God's given to us, and oftentimes to acknowledge that we haven't always done that very well. It's fitting that we're talking about marriage on Life Sunday because marriage was the institution that God created in the very beginning for life to be propagated on the earth. 
It's from God's gift of marriage that, that God's gift of life gloriously unfolds and flourishes. In our time of confession earlier today, we, we admitted that as individuals and as a society, we've not always been fruitful like God desires. God's gift of marriage and, and family and sometimes even God's gift of life has so often either been broken apart by our sin or, or just entirely set aside. We've somehow allowed abortion to become this political issue and, instead of a moral issue, killing our children in the name of of women's rights or convenience, desperation. As we also confessed, we as the church have often demonized those who find themselves in unthinkable situations. We've called such women forsaken, desolate, much like Israel had been called in our reading from Isaiah. Now, we can never in good conscience say that abortion is a viable alternative in any scenario. Life is too precious a gift, and God's commands are too clear to say otherwise. But we must preach the forgiveness of Jesus to those who have terminated their pregnancies and, in most every case, deeply regretted it. Because God calls them, God calls you, God calls us, a new name. But you shall be called, my delight is in her. And your land, married. Yahweh delights in those whose redemption has been won by Christ. And that applies to the repentant abortionist just as much as it does to you and me. So let's bless marriage and life as Jesus did at Cana. And let's make sure to share his forgiveness and his love with everybody. For now, let's go back uh, to Cana. Jesus is at the wedding. He's hanging out with his disciples, uh, maybe some childhood friends of his. uh, When suddenly his mother comes up and says, they have no wine. Now Jesus, like just about every son or or daughter, kind of picks up on the fact that that moms sing a little bit more than than her words alone convey, as, as moms usually do. She wanted him to do something about it, right? And his response, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, there are a few things to unpack here. Uh, First, running out of wine at a first century Jewish wedding was not just a slight embarrassment. It was humiliating. It was a social faux pas of the highest order. And in fact, there's even evidence to suggest that sometimes wedding guests would take legal action against a groom's family when something like this happened. I'm not making that up. We'll come back to that in a little bit. Now, second, in our English translation, Jesus seems to be pretty, uh, I don't know, kind of disrespectful to his mom, don't you think? Woman? Sounds kind of like, woman, make me a sandwich. Um, Yeah. (laughs) good thing you're going to Guatemala, man. (laughs) Now, most of us have known that's not a good way to go, even before Gillette kind of, you know, taught us that this past week. Actually, uh, in Aramaic, this greeting, um, even though it's a little strange to use with your mother, was considered very respectful um, and actually pretty affectionate. But still, uh, Jesus sure seems to be saying no, doesn't he? My hour has not yet come. Well, still in faith, Mary tells the servants to do whatever Jesus says, and we know what comes next, right? 
But what does Jesus mean when he says, my hour has not yet come? Well, in John's gospel especially, this is, this is kind of a repeated theme. Uh, over and over again, Jesus' enemies mean him harm, uh, but they can't do anything to him. And John says it's because his hour had not yet come. Until a little bit later in the gospel when it does. Jesus' hour clearly and repeatedly refers to his suffering and death on the cross. You see, Jesus knows that his first sign will set him on the trajectory to redeem the world by dying for us. He's telling his mother, once I begin doing miracles, I begin the road to the cross. Last week, we said that the baptism of Jesus was in many ways the, the kickoff to his public ministry. Well, this miraculous sign is another big initial step toward the the full revealing of who Jesus is and what he came to do because it points us ahead to the point where Jesus' glory will be most fully revealed on the cross. Jesus knew that by fulfilling his mother's implied request, he would be starting the long walk up the hill to Calvary. So what did he do? He said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. Then he tells the servants to take some and give it to the MC, who, unbeknownst to him, reveals that it has turned into wine. You see, Jesus' first miracle, just like pretty much all of them that will follow it, is a miracle of, of giving, of supplying, of helping. To spare his friends the, the social embarrassment and the repercussions of offending their guests, Jesus gives his aid. He shows that no need escapes his care. And he responds to the need of his friends with abundant provision. The six jars that he uses held 20 to 30 gallons of water each, John says. That's 120 to 180 gallons of water total. And now all of it has become wine. Here we see that Jesus gives compassionately and plentifully He graciously makes up for what is lacking in the groom and his family. And just as he did for them, he has provided all that we needed when what we were able to bring to the table fell woefully short of what was required. How richly, how plentifully he has given to us. Paul says in Romans, if God would give us his own son, how will he not graciously with him give us all things? Jesus gave compassionately and plentifully that day. And he gives compassionately and plentifully to us every day. But there's more to come. When the master of the feast tasted the wine, he said to the groom, you have kept the good wine until now. Now, most people would serve the good wine first and then kind of save the cheap box stuff for later. Um, It was actually pretty unusual, uh, just to clear this up a little bit, in ancient Jewish weddings, uh, it was pretty unusual for people to get really drunk. It was just more a matter of, um, you know, over time, your taste kind of becomes a little less refined. Uh, But regardless, Jesus ends up giving the very best, and he saves the best for what? Saves the best for last. This doesn't just mean that Jesus... Uh, saves the best wine for the last few days of the feast. Jesus giving wine here, and the best wine at that, has far-reaching implications because what Jesus is giving is something new in, in more ways than one. 
And the jars that Jesus used are are significant in understanding this. Uh, Did you catch what they were used for? These jars were for the Jewish rites of purification. So the water inside the jars was used to to make the Jews ceremonially clean, to to wash before meals, uh, to rid themselves of impurities, not, not really just physically, but spiritually. Jesus takes this water and gives his wine. This calls to mind these repeated passages from the prophets where they they speak of this coming messianic age as a time when the wine will flow freely, a time of of great and future abundance. What Jesus gives to us here is, is undeniably better than what came before. The wine that he gave is a signal of the new covenant that he brings, one in which we are made clean and pure, not by ceremonial water, but by the blood of Jesus. And his blood qualifies us to take part in the marriage feast of the lamb in his kingdom, which doesn't last a mere seven days, but will have no end. A celebration that Isaiah tells us will be a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. We have an incredible celebration to look forward to. Jesus has saved the best for last for us as well. And his promise is that after this life that can be so full of sorrow and pain will come an eternity full of joy. That though we sow in tears, we will reap in shouts of joy when God's kingdom fully comes at the return of Jesus, when he will make all things right, when righteousness will be fully fulfilled, to borrow a phrase from last week. For now, our eyes are on him. Because we know who he is. We've seen it. At the end of this account, John says this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, revealed who he was. Jesus showed who he was by doing this first miracle. But whom did he show? The master of the feast had no idea where the wine had come from. He, he didn't even know that Jesus had anything to do with it. Who did know? Well, In verse 11, a little bit later, we're told that the disciples believed in him as a result, so they must have been aware of what had happened. His mother, Mary, certainly knows. But the ones who experienced this miracle literally firsthand were the servants. Imagine their confusion as as Mary told them to follow Jesus' instructions, and then as they filled the jars full of water at his direction, and then carried the water, or so they thought, to the master of the feast. Imagine their shock when the master of the feast declared it to be the very best wine there was. Imagine their awe and wonder at the one who had turned water into wine before their very eyes. Of all the prominent people at the celebration that day, Jesus revealed himself and his glory to the servants, to the lowest and the least. And thankfully for us, he still does. Because that's what we were. The lowest and the least. Forsaken. Desolate. Unclean. Plum out of wine. Plum out of luck. And then he revealed himself to us in glory on the cross. And he washed us. And he made us new in the blood of the new covenant. 
And he said to us, you shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. He called us his delight. He called us his bride. St. Augustine once said, is it any wonder that he who came to that house for a wedding came to this world for a wedding? For he has a bride here whom he has redeemed by his blood and to whom he has given the Holy Spirit as a pledge. That bride of Jesus is you and me. And the wine that he now gives to us is his very blood for the forgiveness of our sins. St. Cyril of Jerusalem once wrote about communion. Jesus once changed water into wine by a word of command at Cana of Galilee. Should we not believe him when he changes wine into blood? It was when he had been invited to an ordinary bodily marriage that he performed the wonderful miracle at Cana. Should we not be much more ready to acknowledge that to the sons of the bridal chamber, to you and to me, he has granted the enjoyment of his body and blood? Moses' first sign had been to change water into blood. Jesus' first sign is to change water into wine. And now, in Holy Communion, he gives us his blood in the wine for the forgiveness of our sins. And that sign, like every other one he has ever given from the wedding at Cana on, serves to show us, the the lowest and the least, who he is. John ends his gospel, kind of right before chapter 21, which is sort of an epilogue, uh, by saying this, kind of talking about all of the things that Jesus has done and, and, uh, and shown to everybody. This is kind of his summary statement. Will you read that with me? These are written... So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That is the point of the miracle at Cana. That's the point of of the cross, of the resurrection. The God who made everything out of nothing made wine out of water. The God who brought life from death has made a broken sinner like you holy and loved And filled to the brim with eternal life. So let's believe that Jesus is the Christ. And by believing have life in his name. Now and forever. In Jesus name. Amen. Next week we will travel from Cana to Nazareth. Where Jesus publicly reveals himself as the anointed one. The Christ. The Messiah. Until then may the peace of God which transcends our understanding. Guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now and forever. Amen.